You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, here's what the Lord says. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'm going to read it one more time and then ask a blessing. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, I ask that you would come now, our hearts to worship you as we hear your word preached. Father, in some regard, I feel um, really unqualified to preach this text. My experience and struggle with fear um, is not something that I have felt very victorious over over the years. So, God, I just I confess my need for you to come and to do what I cannot do, which is to speak your word in a way that is transformative for us. But I pray that your presence with us this morning uh, would be tangible and transformative and revealing. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would take your word and use it like a mirror our hearts and that you would uncover and reveal deep roots of fear and sin inside of our lives and that you would draw us in the midst of that to the foot of the cross and the doorway of an empty tomb, and remind us and refresh us once again in the truth that you did pay it all. And because of that, we can live victorious. God, I pray that you would do that work in my preaching this morning. pray that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, and that you would use them for the good of your people, for your own glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So uh, a question for you um, to start us off this morning. Uh, here's the question. It's really kind of the big question uh, for, 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 for this sermon, and it's uh, a lot of questions are going to come out of that. So, um, so if you have a pen and a piece of paper, you might be ready to write down a lot of questions. Um, I think there's some good statements here too, but there will be a lot of questions for us to wrestle with. But first question um, that, that I come to is this question, what frightens you? What frightens you? What, what are you really afraid of? What scares you to death? What, what frightens you so much that it actually paralyzes you and causes you to be unable to move forward in something? I think questions need context when you ask questions. Uh, you know that I love to look at context, especially with biblical passages. So what I want to do is take a quick journey through the book of Joshua chapter by chapter, with that question in our mind, that one single question, what frightens you to death? What scares you so much that you can feel it deep down inside? With that question in your mind, I want to lay context. And I was joking with Andrew earlier, said I'm going to preach through the entire book of Joshua. That ought to scare all of us, right? I don't know any preacher that can preach through the entire book, and, and I can't do it. So here we go. Chapter 1, as you take a look through, if you've got a Bible on you, um, 
you might just track with me. In chapter 1, what God does is He commissions and calls Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, right? And what we learn through that is that this is a calling, not a job. Chapter 2, you see Joshua sending spies into that promised land. And he sends them there to spy on a town named Jericho. And you, you've been around the church much, you might remember that story. Jericho was the first city that Israel would wage war against. And as he sends those spies in, a prostitute named Rahab helps them. And this, this story in chapter 2 is an interesting story of God using someone with a less than desirable story to further his purpose. Doesn't that give you some hope about your own story and God's being able to use you? Right? If he can use a prostitute to further his kingdom. In chapter 3, we see Joshua leading Israel across the Jordan River. Uh, it's a fantastic chapter to read. He leads them across the Jordan River on dry ground, which should be a reminder for us, because it really is a throwback to God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. did it in the very same way decades earlier. Now he does it again. And what Joshua does in chapter 3 is he uses that experience as an opportunity to remind Israel that God is with them, that He will never lead them or forsake them, and that He will defeat their enemies once and for all. And then as you move into chapter 4, um, coming out of the other side of that crossing of the Jordan River, um, Joshua sets a pile of 12 stones to remind the people of God's mighty power. And we all need reminders that point us back to God's faithfulness, don't we? What kind of reminders do you have in your life that you've set up where you remember God's faithfulness when the wheels come off the bus, when stuff hits the fan? What kind of piles of 12 stones have you created in your life to remind yourself of God's faithful, powerful, provisional presence? And you get into chapter 5, that's an interesting chapter too. Um, chapter 5, Joshua circumcises the entire nation of Israel. Now, that doesn't sound like a fun day. Adults getting super circumcised. He circumcises this new generation of Israel. Um, there's something really symbolic that's taking place in this chapter as the old guard that was really rebellious and and uh, disobedient had died off. This new generation that was coming into the promised land had not yet been circumcised. And so as Joshua circumcises this new generation of Israel, and at the same time they eat the fruit of the promised land for the first time, um, there's all sorts of imagery there that I don't have time to get into. Um, he, also, he also, in chapter uh, 5, encounters an angel who is the commander of the Lord's army. Like, can, you, can you imagine a day where you eat the best meal you've ever had? For me, that would be a massive ribeye steak. Um, but then at the same time, you meet the commander of the Lord's army. Like, that's a big day to put on the calendar, don't you think? A big day to put on the calendar. Chapter 6, we move into that. Joshua leads Israel in its first battle. See, all of this has been leading up to this first battle in the Promised Land. And it's the Battle of Jericho, right? And God defeats Jericho in a miraculous way as they're like 
marching around the walls blowing trumpets instead of waging war with tools that we would normally wage war with. Like it's a miraculous defeat. It's a miraculous victory that we see happening against Jericho. And what God does in that passage is He proves once again that He is with His people wherever they go. It's a strong theme all throughout Joshua. Strong and courageous. Fear not. Be not dismayed. I am with you. You see that theme all the way through. Chapter 7 is an interesting chapter. It's kind of the downturn in the story. Um, Some of the people in the congregation of Israel begin to live in secret sin. And because of their secret sin, God allows them to be defeated by their enemies from a a town or a nation called Ai. Um, In that chapter, chapter 7, when this happens, uh, we see Joshua on his face before the Lord in absolute agony. I mean, this is a picture of a man who is severely depressed when he's laying before the Lord. And he's depressed and he's in agony because of the sin of the people, the consequences of that sin that the entire nation would experience, as well as, I think, the responsibility to lead this congregation-wide discipline process that, if you look at it in chapter 7, is very brutal. So brutal in my mind that I, I, if, if I was Joshua, it would have left me having nightmares for years to come. It's the test of leadership all throughout Joshua. Chapter 8, there's, a, there's an upturn after the downturn. There's an upturn in the storyline as Joshua leads the people in war against that nation, Ai, that had previously defeated them. Leads them in that war. And as he's leading them, Uh, In that war, he also leads them to renew their covenant relationship with the Lord because of his faithfulness when he gives them the victory over their enemies. Chapter 9, Israel's neighbors, they call them the Gibeonites. Strange names they have all throughout the Bible for these groups of people. The Gibeonites use deception to make a peace treaty with Israel. And in that deception, as they gain the peace treaty with Israel, they, they do that because they're afraid. They're fearful. They've been hearing stories of all the nations and all the cities and all the kings that are being conquered under Israel's conquest of the promised land. So the Gibeonites come in and they use deception to get this peace treaty with Israel. And then when you move into chapter 10, um, you see the enemies of Israel from other nations coming to attack Israel. And they attack the Gibeonites first. So because of the peace treaty, because Joshua has agreed to protect them Um, he leads israel to defend them and defeat their enemies and while he's leading them this is interesting this is great this is a great day in battle when this happens he's leading israel in battle against their enemies to protect themselves and to defend um, the gibeonites and as he does that he actually like looks up at the sun and calls the sun to stand still that's a big day right (laughs) like what the heck just happened the sun stood still I don't know how they knew that, but the sun stood still. That single event there happening causes everyone around to marvel at the powerful, provisional, faithful presence of the Lord. It's a story about God continuing to defeat our enemies, which points towards the cross, doesn't it? Because at the cross... Jesus victoriously defeats our enemies 
once and for all. Satan, sin in the grave. Don't stand a chance against our Savior. No reason to live in fear. The tomb is empty. Move on to chapter uh, 11, I mean, you get this horde of kings. Like, like the bad guys just don't stop in this story, right? They just keep coming. This horde of all these kings from the northern part of the land come and they wage war against Israel. And the Lord helps Israel defeat them too. Like nothing can stand against God and his people. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Chapter 12 is basically a list of all the enemy kings that God gives in the hands of Israel in defeat. Kind of like a trophy wall. Not Joshua's trophy wall, it's God's trophy wall. Chapter 13, Joshua's old and tired. I know many of us in this room know what that feels like. When I, when I read this, I, I read this portion in chapter 13 um, this last summer as I was away on vacation. Every year, vacation for me is the time to refresh and renew. And I remember reading this portion and just realizing that, man, here's God standing right next to Joshua. He's like, hey, I see you. And you've been through a lot. And you're leading. You're, 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 you're living. I know you're tired. You're worn out. Comes to Joshua and he says that. He notices where he's at. Doesn't gloss that over. Recognizes his years of faithfulness. Recognizes his weariness. But then he tells him that his conquest is not yet over. You haven't completely taken possession of the promised land. You're not in heaven yet. Be a good way to remember this. The journey's not over. But God promises in, in the midst of that, that he will continue doing this work of driving out Israel's enemies. Then he instructs Joshua to, to distribute the land by lot, by tribe. And then really the next couple of chapters from chapter 14 through chapter 21 is, is almost like a genealogy. It's hard to read. Um, it's like a list of how Joshua distributes all of the property, all of the land out to Israel. Uh, and then in chapter 21, verse 43 and 45, the end of chapter 21, after that big long list through all those chapters, Israel rests in their possession like we will rest in heaven, the real promised land for us. We're aliens here, right? Looking forward to that day like Andrew alluded to earlier. Israel rests in their possession of their inheritance and they remember that God is faithful. They remember that He is powerful that he is present as he promised to be and here we get this picture in this moment at the end of chapter 21 we get a picture that the physical inheritance of property that they were experiencing actually pointed to the spiritual inheritance of god's redeeming presence heaven like i just said then you move into chapter 22 and the eastern tribes of israel you got an eastern section and a western section on one side of the jordan river on the other side of the jordan river and the eastern tribes set up this altar to remind everyone that they also serve the Lord. That they're feeling a little bit put out because they're not on the western side. And they're afraid that somebody might think that because they're on the other side that they might, they might worship God less. right? And so they want to be on the in crowd. They set up this big altar to remind themselves, their children, every generation to come, that they serve the Lord just the same as the western tribes do. And that episode 
um, there in chapter 22 actually almost starts a war between the eastern and the western divisions of Israel, but God in His kindness protects the unity among them. Again, it's a story of God's powerful presence protecting and building. Chapter 23, Joshua challenges Israel to never rebel against God, but to instead continue loving God with their entire beings by obediently trusting Him as they remember His faithful, powerful, provisional presence with them through thick and through thin. Like a summary. The final chapter of Joshua is chapter 24. And you, some of you might remember this. When I came back from my vacation time back in August, um, brought a brick out. Remember? Talked about that brick. It's still sitting in my office today. Chapter 24, Joshua reminds Israel once again of its long history of obedience, rebellion. He reminds them that they're now living in cities that they didn't build. They're eating from fruit, from vineyards that they didn't plant. <coughs> in the context of that, Joshua challenges Israel to choose you this day whom you will serve. And as he challenges them with that, he says, this rock to be a remembrance for us as a witness to the words that you said today. Because he asks them over and over and over again, you really want to serve God? You really want to serve God? You really want to serve God? And Israel the whole time is like, yeah, absolutely, we want to serve him, we want to serve him, we want to serve him, okay. You want to serve God? Here's a rock to remember your commitment by. So that last chapter, along with every chapter before, uh, is really a continual reminder to Israel and to us, right? It's a reminder to not be afraid, to not be dismayed, but to be strong and courageous in our obedience. Why? Because God is with us. That's why. So that sets the context for the question. Now that we've zoomed out and we've seen that, zoom back in. Think of this question. What is it that frightens you? What is it that scares you to death? What, what scares you so much that it actually paralyzes you and causes you to find no traction? Where do you find yourself on the side of the road, spinning your wheels in the mud, and you're stuck? What is that for you? I'm scared of a lot of things. I'm deathly afraid of snakes. Most of you know that. Yep. Amen. Snakes are, snakes are from the devil, descendants of the devil. Uh, there's a story about a time. Some of you have heard this story. If you haven't, it's a great story. A story about a time when one of my daughters, we were in the basement of a house that we lived in in Crete. We were helping to plant a church there. And we were in the basement, sitting on a chair, and asked our oldest daughter, Aubrey, to uh, open the, the window. It was middle of summer. It was warm. And it'll open up the window in the basement here so that we can get some air flowage. And uh, there was a snake in the windowsill, apparently, right behind the glass. And when she opened it, it moved. She saw it. She screamed, snake! And uh, like jumped off the couch. Of course, me, I'm in the reclining chair. It's ready for school or something. I'm up. I'm out that chair, down the hall, up the steps, out the back door. You know, just as fast as you could possibly imagine. And, um, uh, you know, but by the time I was safe outside our home and my heart had stopped beating a million miles a minute, um, I realized that what had happened in this process is I'm running down the hallway. Uh, I run right past one of our other daughter's faith. And I just like linebacker shoved her through the wall. Okay? Like she went through the sheetrock and wound up on her butt in the bathroom in our basement. Um, tough day. She's fine. She's okay. She gets counseling for it every now and then. <laughs> my, my kids love to tell that story. Um, those of you that have heard, I know you love to make fun of me for it too. And as funny as that story is, there are plenty of other things to be afraid of. 
of far more serious things than snakes, right? Be afraid of failure. Be afraid of looking stupid. Be afraid of being rejected or a fear of being uh, betrayed. Now, how about the fear of losing friendships? Or how about the fear of being alone? And what frightens you? What frightens you so much that it paralyzes you? What frightens you so much that you want to hide out of fear for the fear that you have? Think about that. I always wonder what was going on through Joshua's mind in this passage. I can't imagine. I mean, the text doesn't really tell us what's going through his mind, but if you'd allow me some liberties and put ourselves in Joshua's shoes for a minute, wonder what it would have been like to be Joshua, to hear the words of this passage spoken to me, not knowing what was coming. And that's where fear comes from, is not knowing what's coming. No control over what's going to happen next, right? God is literally commanding Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. There's uh, rumors of giants in that land. Entire cities would need to be conquered in that land. There would be catastrophic violence, as we've just summarized. Rebellion, opposition, a whole host of other hurdles, right? Factoring into leading the people of Israel into that land. Tons of reasons for Joshua to be afraid, to be dismayed. Put myself in Joshua's shoes, might be asking questions like, what if I make the wrong decision? Ever been afraid of making the wrong decision? What if they don't listen to me? What if the enemy is too powerful for me to overcome? What if my plans fail epically? Anybody here make plans for your life? And then step back in fear sometimes and wonder if they're just going to epically fail? Maybe because of your experience of failure already? What if I wind up looking stupid as I'm trying to do this? What if I'm the only one left when this is all over? Questions that I might have asked if I was in Joshua's shoes. I want you to drill down to this for a minute too. Think about this what if question. It's a question that we all ask, right? What if? I'm convinced the underlying question underneath all of our what if I questions is not really what if I. The real question under the what if I question is what if God, isn't it? What if I is only a distraction from that question because that question, what if God, that's the question that Satan's been depositing into my heart from the get-go. Been doing it since the, the Garden of Eden, hadn't he? Get you and I to question God. Satan's not concerned with getting you or I to question our own abilities. But if he can start there, he'll start there. I think Satan's chief aim is getting you and I to question God without knowing that we're doing it so that he can also then silently feed our fear until it's such a big monster that we're completely overcome by it. What if God isn't big enough? That's the question Satan wants us to ask. You can't hide from that question. You can try to, and you can try to dress it up in religious language, but at the end of the day, it's a question that I think every one of us wrestles with at different times in our lives. What if God isn't big enough for this? 
What if God doesn't really come through this time? What if God hasn't actually been truthful with me? What if God isn't really faithful? What if God doesn't really love me? Ask that. What if God hasn't really chosen me? Ask. What if God leaves me all alone? Ask you again. What is your deep? Deeply afraid of him. My deepest fear is the fear of being rejected. That's my deepest fear. First time I remember uh, feeling completely alone was when my dad left our home when I was five. From that point forward, there were uh, what appears to be strategic experiences that were meant by our enemy, the devil, to cultivate this fear of being alone. And not only cultivate that fear, but actually confirm that my deepest fear is actually true. You are alone. That's the lie. Satan whispered deep within my soul from the beginning. What is the biggest lie that has been deposited into your heart by our enemy? Don't hide from that. Don't run from that. I'm here to proclaim to you that Jesus wants to set you free from that. Satan whispered lies into my heart and my soul from the beginning. Those lies were like tiny little arrows that became so deeply embedded in my being that I could not distinguish them from reality. When my mom bounced from one dude to the next, it confirmed my fear that I wasn't good enough Therefore, I was all alone. So I found momentary relief in pornography addiction. Let me ask you, where do you seek momentary relief from your greatest fear? Where do you seek momentary relief from your greatest fear? Uh, In the early years, when my marriage began to fall apart, it confirmed my fear that I was all alone. So I found momentary relief in the arms of another woman. Where do you seek momentary relief from your greatest fear? When I didn't make enough money to cover the budget, it confirmed my fear that I was all alone. And I found momentary relief in overworking myself. Where do you find momentary relief from your greatest fear? Uh, When the pain of betrayal, pain of loss, The pain of rejection from close friends confirmed my fear that I really am all alone. I found momentary relief through drug and alcohol addiction and isolation. So where do you seek momentary relief from your greatest fear? And how do you face your fears? How do you face your deepest fears? How do you muster up the courage to Obey God against all odds. It kind of feels a little hopeless sometimes, doesn't it? A strong point of the gospel. If you've not sensed the hopelessness of despair because of your sin, you'll never experience the joy of the hope that you have in Christ and the promise that He will never leave you or forsake. How do you no longer hide out in fear and paralysis if you've been hit by a truck? 
How do you overcome your fear in the following instances? Think about this. Facing your sin head on instead of hiding from it and running from it and pretending like you don't got it. How about discipling one another? Discipling your spouse, friends. Like Discipleship is hard. It's scary. Like you got to be able to look at somebody and say, hey, come follow me as I follow Christ. That's a scary thing to uh, say to somebody. Well, loving your enemy. That's a scary thing to do. To love your enemy so that they can just continue to backstab you. Sounds like an awful lot of fun, but it sounds like the cross, doesn't it? It's scary. Working fewer hours can be scary if the budget doesn't meet. Confronting sin in a friend can be scary if you know that they're probably going to bail on you. Never talk to you again. Sharing the gospel with an unbeliever can be scary because they're going to have pushback. And you might not have the right answer. Teaching your kids the ways of the Lord can be scary because sometimes they'll just sit there and roll your eyes at you when you're trying to read the scriptures to them and teach them the ways of the Lord, right? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't experienced that, and it could be that you're not trying to do this with your kids, though, right? That's a scary thing, though. How do you be strong and courageous in these instances? Like the answer, I believe, and I think you've probably heard me alluding to it all the way through, it's found in believing and trusting in the promises of God. The picture of faith throughout the Scriptures, it's a picture of both believing on the one hand and trusting on the other. Faith is not merely believing that God can wheel you across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow on a tightrope. Faith is trusting God to do what He promised to do by getting into that wheelbarrow and letting Him wheel you across whatever fear-filled tightrope you have. That's, that's faith. But the explicit promise of this passage to Joshua, and I think to us, is that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will be with you wherever you go if you've trusted in Him. Trust in His Son's work on the cross. Joshua was able to trust, not merely believe. He was able to believe and trust in the promise. And that promise is what actually enabled His obedience. It's what enabled His holiness. Joshua didn't give lip service to the be strong and courageous message and then hide out in the back while everybody else fought the battle. Because that would have been disobedient sin. Joshua's faith was proven by the fact that he was on the front line. The foundational root of all disobedience is deception. And the foundational root of all joy-filled obedience is truth. Let me say this again. The foundational root of all disobedience is deception. And the foundational root of all joy-filled obedience is truth. Deception locks us into a prison of doubt and despair. And the truth is what sets us free to live in freedom. So the question is, what lies have you trusted and believed in? And what truths do you need to trust and believe in now? If you think about your confession of sin and faith, oftentimes um, 
we in the church turn a confession of sin and faith into a sinner's prayer, pray once, and then you think you're okay after that. And you just learn a bunch of religious language to pretend that you're okay. The confession of sin is admitting the lies we believe and acted upon sinfully. That's a confession of sin. And then a confession of truth is confessing the truth of God's promises and then acting in faith upon those promises. And this is the faith in action that the book of James tells us about in the New Testament. It's the faith in action that we see in the disciples, right, as they plant the early church in the book of Acts. The early disciples didn't merely just believe. They believed and trusted that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with them in the flesh would always be with them by the power of His Spirit. They believed and trusted. They had faith in Christ when He told them to go and make disciples while trusting that He would be with them until the end of the age. This whole promise of God being with us shows up all throughout the Scriptures as a theme. Self-help and self-effort are enemies of faith. Self-help and self-effort, they're not the same as faith and action. We can dress it up with some lipstick and some new clothes and make a dead corpse look like it's alive, but I can tell you, you're living on self-help and self-effort, you're dead. And the truth of the gospel is meant to bring us to life. It's not merely putting new clothing and lipstick on. Pulling up my bootstraps won't produce authentic, lasting That will only produce broken bootstraps at best, broken legs at worst. And the only way to obey this command to be strong and courageous in the face of my worst fear, the fear of being alone, is to believe and to trust and to live in the promise that God is always with me. Let the promise of the gospel Refresh your courage today. God is near to the downcast. God is a friend of sinners. He is the healer of the sick. He opens the eyes of the blind. He invites himself into the homes of wicked people. He steps into the broken places and the broken spaces and the, 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 the broken hallways of my sin-filled heart and your sin-filled hearts where he wants to go. Jesus died so that you and I might have new lives. And he left the tomb empty so that you and I might live victoriously, not live in defeat. He gave you and I his spirit so that we might be enabled to live courageously. And he promises, he promises that he will return one day to take you and I to the real promised land, the one where there is no more pain no more suffering, no more loneliness, no more hurt. It's called heaven. That's where he promises to take us. In conclusion, I just want to say that over and over and over again, God proves he's not only big enough, he's not only faithful enough, although those would be enough. He's not only loving enough, he's not only merciful enough and Gracious enough, but he is present enough. He's present enough. He's with you in your pain and your hurt, your struggle with sin. He's calling you to come and follow, trust in him, live victoriously.
He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll be with you wherever He calls you to go. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Our God is with you. Father, I ask that you would um, take this word, apply it to our hearts over the next few moments as we participate together in remembering the shed blood and the broken body of your Son, Jesus, as we participate in the remembering of that in a meal together. Pray, God, that you would come and strengthen those who are weak, call to repentance those who have been living in rebellion, and heal those of us who are living in a place of woundedness. We trust that your broken body at the cross, your shed blood at the cross, is more than powerful to do just that. Trust you with that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.